are listening to Cover Stories, a deep dive into the stories behind iconic album art with Adam Charlie O. Ernest Eugene Barnes Jr. was the 112th overall selection in the 1960 NFL Draft. He was selected by my Baltimore Colts in the 10th round. He was originally selected by the Washington Redskins in the 8th round, but they renounced their pick within minutes after discovering Barnes was black. Shortly after he was drafted, the Colts invited him to watch them play the New York Giants in the 1959 NFL Championship game at Memorial Stadium in Baltimore on December 27, 1959. The Colts won 31-16. The experience of watching the game from the Colts' bench filled Barnes with layers of emotion. A mere 21 years of age, he had just signed his football contract and met his new teammates, Johnny Unitas, Jim Parker, Lenny Moore, Art Donovan, Gino Marchetti, Alan Amici, and Big Daddy Lipscomb. The first five players in that list went on to the Pro Football Hall of Fame. After the game, he went directly to a blank canvas to record his point of view. Using a palette knife, painting in quick, direct movements, hoping to capture the vision before it evaporated, Barnes created one of his first paintings, The Bench, in less than an hour. During the Baltimore Colts training camp, Barnes was interviewed by a local sports writer who referred to him in his article as Ernie Barnes. Until that moment, he had always been known as Ernest Barnes. That serendipitous event not only changed his name, it changed his life. Ernie Barnes would soon enough become a successful artist and actor. Barnes was the last player cut at the Colts training camp. After Baltimore released him, he immediately signed with the newly formed Titans of New York. The bench was the only painting Barnes would never sell despite many substantial offers. It remained in Barnes' possession his entire life. He even took it to all his football training camps where he hid it under his bed. In 2014, his wife Bernie presented the painting to the Pro Football Hall of Fame for their permanent collection in Canton, Ohio. Shortly after his football career ended, Barnes went to the 1965 NFL owners meeting in Houston hoping to become the league's official artist. Sonny Werblin, owner of the New York Jets, was intrigued by Barnes and his art, so he offered Barnes a contract as a salaried player, but used him as an artist, telling him, you have more value to the country as an artist than as a football player. At his first solo exhibition hosted by Werblin, his work was critically acclaimed and all the paintings sold. Let's fast forward to Marvin Gaye. Gaye was a singer and songwriter who helped shape the sound of Motown, where he earned the nicknames Prince of Motown and Prince of Soul as a solo artist with a long string of successes. I Want You was his 14th studio album, released on March 16, 1976. It's also the title track of the album. While recording I Want You, Gaye was in a volatile marriage with Anna Gordy, sister to Barry Gordy, the mastermind of the Motown sound, and also in a long-standing affair with Janice Hunter, who would later become the mother of his two youngest children. Gay's biographer wrote, I Want You is unmistakably a work of romantic and erotic tribute to the woman he deeply loved and would shortly marry, Janice Hunter. Gay sang to Hunter in the studio during lengthy cocaine-fueled sessions, 
He insisted that she be with him while he was recording. Hunter described this as a magical feeling, adding, And it was more than the impossibly seductive music. It was the feeling of the family, living together, while his songs were sculptured into a form that was distinctively Marvin. The blending of Marvin's many voices was mirrored in the emotional harmony between us. Hunter said, in the album's final track, After the Dance, Marvin fantasized about seeing me on Soul Train. It didn't matter that I was never a Soul Train dancer. He invented the scenario. This album would require a very special cover. Gay's colleague, Barbara Hunter, had introduced him to Barnes. Gay was a big fan and bought eight Barnes originals, including the Sugar Shack. Gay subsequently asked Barnes for permission to use the painting as the album cover for I Want You. Barnes not only said yes, he also augmented the painting for the album by adding references to Gay's album. Gay was excited by the album sleeve and said, As part of the package, one has to consider the cover, one that will be interesting because I like to bring something into people's lives. I didn't simply want to use a photo, so I went to great lengths of buying a painting. I even held up the production of the cover because I wanted the picture to be right. It had pretty good connotations. It was ethnic and was something that people who are not colored or black can look at and say, here's a study of us. The Sugar Shack scene emulates Gay's Soul Train scenario to artistic perfection. Barnes painted the Sugar Shack in 1971. It first gained widespread exposure when it was modified for the opening and closing credits of Norman Lear's TV show, Good Times, starting in the fourth season, 1976 to 1977. The inspiration for Barnes' work came from the iconic Durham Armory dance hall from his childhood in segregated North Carolina. Barnes snuck into the armory when he was 13 to watch the dancers, and his memory of the music and the movement gave life to the Sugar Shack. He said, The Sugar Shack is a recall of a childhood experience. It was the first time my innocence met with the sins of dance. The painting transmits rhythm so the experience is recreated in the person viewing it, to show that African Americans utilize rhythm as a way of resolving physical tension. The original piece is currently owned by Eddie Murphy and is on display at his home in Beverly Park, California. Barnes created a duplicate in 1976 that sold in 2022 for $15.3 million. 1976 was also the year Marvin Gaye's album, I Want You, featured the Sugar Shack on its cover. The Sugar Shack transports us to a lively black dance club. Barnes' original work included four banners hanging from the ceiling as the Sugar Shack swings to the sounds of a four-man combo. In fact, the 71 original, the album cover version, and the 76 copy can all be distinguished by the banners. A balcony is occupied by seven partygoers. The dance floor is crowded by a dozen dancers, some bumping and grinding, others swinging and swaying. A 13th man on the floor sits by the band who play on a raised stage. What all two dozen people have in common is their eyes are closed, a signature in nearly all of Barnes's paintings. He said, I tend to paint everyone, 
most everyone, with our eyes closed, because I feel that we are blind to one another's humanity. So if we could see the gifts, strengths, and potentials within every human being, then our eyes would be opened. For those with some art chops, Barnes's work is described as neo-mannerist, referencing the late Renaissance period of Leonardo da Vinci and Raphael. It has also been described as in the art style called Black Romantic. The 13th man I mentioned is in a blue uniform with a newspaper at his feet. Unlike everyone else, he appears downcast. The woman in a yellow dress and white shoes dancing at the front of the stage is a character who appears in many of Barnes's artwork. Motown's marketing department would have preferred Gay's likeness on the front cover, but Marvin stuck to his guns. One wonders if the music from the album might have been the playlist for this club. The Sugar Shack image has come to exemplify the immersive and energetic experience of black culture. The Oakland Tribune called Ernie Barnes the Picasso of the black art world, and other art critics believed he was one of the best black painters of his time. Here's an interesting little addendum to this album artwork. As I mentioned, all the men have shaved heads, and before 1975 ended, Gay stunned the San Francisco concert audience by appearing with his head shaved. He said it was his protest against the incarceration of Reuben Hurricane Carter, but one can't help but think Ernie Barnes may have played a part in his decision as well. Let's hit the pause button and chat a bit. What's going on? Hey. Well, that's my first and last pun. There you go. Maybe. We'll see. Uh, Before we get started, I'd like to run through a few of the stats you found in your research here. Because listed alone, I'm not sure if I would have found the album this is talking about. So in 2022, the painting that eventually inspires this cover album, Virtually Unchanged, went for $15.2 million at a Christie's auction, right? Yeah, that was the second copy. Yes. That, that sold. Yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah. But okay. you're right, yes. Now, the reproduction made specifically for the artist record is in the hands of who? Also a, a big name, I believe, right? Uh, yes, Eddie Murphy. Eddie Murphy, indeed. So that's hanging in his home. Yep. And this painting also featured prominently, you know, slightly changed, but prominently in the Long-running cultural touchstone, good times. Yes. Right? So yes. if you had Got told some me... mileage out yeah, of it. It, it. Certainly some mileage. If you had told me these three things, I would have had no idea what it is, despite <laughs> having seen all of them before. Yeah. Um, but uh, if you don't have any idea either, don't worry. The, uh, <laughs> the origins are a bit more humble. Um, so before we get into the 14th studio album, I Want You by Marvin Gaye, uh, we need to meet Ernest or Ernie Barnes, yeah, yeah. but Ernie Barnes, the football player. So, give us a little, uh, give us a little background here. Well, as I said, the, the neat thing about it was that you know he was drafted by the Baltimore Colts, and being a Baltimorean, that really piqued my interest. So I dug a little deeper into him, and he had a he had about a three year uh, career in the NFL, which is I guess about average, uh, but uh, the the interesting thing to me was that the Washington Redskins had drafted him in the eighth round, two rounds earlier than the Colts took him, 
But when they found out that he was a black man, they tossed him back into the pool and, and went to somebody else. And uh, that, that's a, uh, that was a surprising statement, given that it was 1960. I, I, I guess I wasn't terribly aware of, of all the levels of, of uh, racism in the world around me. But, you know, on, on the football field seemed like one place where it didn't quite exist the same way. The Colts had Lenny Moore. You know, he was a, a, a black halfback that was at the top of the of this profession at the time. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, subsequently, um, uh, I found out that, yeah, life wasn't as easy for Lenny Moore as it was for uh, John Unitas and Alan Amici and, and some of the white Colts. Yeah, I'm, I'm certainly not surprised to hear that. But it's long-storied and much talked about. Your segregation in baseball, the color yeah. line in baseball. We don't hear about that as much in the NFL. Do you remember, I mean, you just said you don't necessarily due to your age, but in the ranks of the NFL, what's what's different from baseball? I mean, was there something specific to Baltimore that made, you know, was there a different culture on the Colts? Uh, maybe there was. I don't think it was too terribly different because, as I said, in reading subsequently about you know the Colts, I, I learned that there were, you know, there, that there were um, two levels of players: black sure. players and white players. Yeah. And despite Lenny Moore's uh, success on the field and his camaraderie with his players, uh, you know that wasn't as open to him or as available to him off the field as it was to other players. You know there were there were cliques or whatever we want to call them, uh, segregated groups, I suppose. And I don't know if Baltimore was any more, um, I don't know that Baltimore was any more enlightened. Um, you know, it, it is a, uh, and has been for some time considered a black city. You know, the, the population in Baltimore at the time, you know, um, the black population was still a minority back in 1960, but it was larger than it was in a lot of northern cities and things. So maybe maybe there was a little difference, but I, I don't know that that's, you know, uh, interesting question, I guess I should say. I can't, I can't answer. <laughs> well, no, it's interesting because ultimately, you know, his football career, while relatively short, is ultimately responsible for, you know, where he ended up. Let's yeah. talk a little bit about the bench. Yeah. And yeah. that's his, is that his early earliest recorded professional piece, so to speak? I I, I think maybe it was. Um, you know, like I, I didn't do a deep dive on his... Uh, you know, art production, but it, it seems like it was. It was certainly his favorite. Uh, I thought it was really neat that they said, you know, he took it with him uh, everywhere yeah. he went, and yeah. it was the only picture that he said he that he always refused to sell. But you know, it was his first game before he was in the NFL. He was invited to this uh, championship game, and certainly it impressed him. And and so uh, I think that it was kind of a neat story. As well, yeah, it sounded like it became an, an amulet of sorts that yeah. he just kind of brought with him throughout his entire career. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned it earlier. Oh, and a uh, side note: who won that game? Let's, yeah. let's yeah, come on, it's the Colts. Two years running, the clearly Col the Colts yeah. were world champions, <laughs> fifty-eight and fifty-nine. Um, so had Barnes been a better player, or you know, had a career not beleaguered by injury, maybe we'd be recording a different podcast. Right yes, now, on a different album entirely. Yeah, he may not have had time to paint or he may have been crippled up and unable to paint <laughs> certainly yeah uh but after a players meeting it was it was jets owner at the time yeah. sonny werblin right. i think that eventually right. hired him as not just their official artist but he also gave him a solo exhibition right his first i'd have to imagine yeah he financed that uh i believe and i think uh, interesting I, I mentioned you know in the story 
that uh, he was put on the, the Jets roster. He was actually considered a player as far as the NFL was concerned, but all he was doing was painting. Yeah. Now, this is this is wildly unique, right? I mean, it certainly yeah. doesn't happen yeah. today, and I find it difficult to imagine yeah. it happened back then yeah. with any frequency. He's the only one, I'd imagine. Uh, I've never heard of such a thing before. I tried to find it. There uh, <laughs> appears to be no other record of it. But it brings up what I find to be a really interesting point, the convergence of the sport and art world. It's kind of a... Kind of a uh, just a meeting point that we don't really talk about much culturally, and I think it's kind of ignored, but even the Olympics, for the first four decades of the Olympics, they awarded medals for painting, sculpture, architecture, literature, and music. Really? Indeed. Uh, and no this was that. incredibly surprising no, wow. to me. And I think, huh. you know, even the original, the very origins of the Olympics were heavily focused in the arts. And I think we lost huh. that at a certain point. Absolutely. And news to me. He really, Barnes really brings that back. Um, yeah, he does. If you take a look at some of his work basketball, incredible. boxing, football, yeah. it's all in there. Uh, in, in addition to his devotion to you know his own roots. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so there's Barnes, you know, in a, in a nutshell. Mm -hmm. There's certainly far more worth exploring, and we'll get into more of that later. But let's talk about Marvin Gaye. Or let's get it on. I lied about that pun thing. He doesn't need much of an introduction. No, I don't think so. So by this point, he's already a musical and cultural touchstone. So it's no surprise that he was aware of and pretty knee-deep into collecting Barnes's work, right? Yeah, friendly with the guy. They played tennis together and things. Oh, that I didn't yeah, know. Yeah, See, yeah. more sports there. there Marvin you Gaye, you yeah. know. So we're a few years removed from the masterpiece, What's Going On?, Side question, I've always assumed that's a record, much like our recently discussed Carol King's Tapestry, that was just in every home. Is that off base? Yeah, probably, simply because, uh, you know, given the time, uh, black music was accept more acceptable in some parts of the country than others, yeah. I think. And, and yeah. I, I don't know, though. It would be interesting to take a look at sales. I don't want to speak... Uh, you know, out of ignorance, which is what I am doing exactly right now. But I would have been surprised. I, you know, it certainly wasn't up there with Carol King's tapestry in terms of sales. Okay. Uh, but I think it's a song that's been rediscovered afterwards too. You know, uh, you know, his environmental views and all that sort of thing uh, have been kind of a um, post history or, or a reinterpretation of the history. I think. certainly, certainly. <clears throat> so do you remember anything about Marvin at the time? I mean, we have, it's an interesting time. We have between what's going on and the absolute disco takeover era looming. Yeah. So. Well, I, I loved soul music coming up, but it was the Four Tops, the Temptations, okay. the Supremes. It was more groups, I guess. I wasn't, uh, wasn't as aware of some of the individual artists and wasn't aware even of, of what was going on in Motown. I mean, I know they were all coming out on on the Motown label, but sure. uh, you know, to, to know some of the things that I've subsequently learned, uh, I was totally ignorant of, of all that stuff at the time. You know, it was just, uh, you know, what was, what was making the top 40 and, uh, you know, in the Baltimore area, a lot of that was soul music okay. for a long time. Yeah. But it's interesting. Cause I think Marvin Gaye was one of the artists that really helped usher in the change from, you know, four suits singing love songs into things <laughs> of yeah. more cultural import. Yeah, yeah. But so that we're pretty deep into his career already. And I Want You, the name of this album, seems to 
obviously reference his then mistress and muse. What's so Janice Hunter? Yeah. Um, yeah. Tell, yeah I, I think there's no question <laughs> about that. Yeah. Um, so Gay also mentions Soul Train. And before we talk about that, I'm curious if you remember much about Soul Train. Well, uh, I I don't know how prevalent it was, but in Baltimore we had the Buddy Dean show. It was a dance show. It had teenagers, and they were all white teenagers. Yeah. And after a couple of years, then they would have a special show where they would have black teenagers on. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but then, you know, then you wouldn't see anything on Buddy Dean again for another couple of weeks or months or so. So uh, Soul Train came out, I think, you know, as, as, an, as an alternative, I think. And so, yeah, it was on. But um, I, I wish I could say I was more enlightened, but I wasn't watching a lot of Soul Train. Gotcha, gotcha. Now, at the time, you know, it to me sort of feels like the modern analog to this Durham dance hall that inspires yeah. the painting that we're yeah. talking about today. Absolutely. You know, the, the, the cover of I Want You. Um, but Soul Train, I'm guessing, was integrated. Uh, not much, I don't think. It may okay. have been. That's a good question again. I'm, I, I'm not going to speculate on that. Yeah, I, yeah. My, Understood. My lying memory says not so much, but I could be surprised. But but at this point, it was televised and not yeah. relegated to the barn, so right. to speak. Right. Now, the original piece titled, what, Sugar Shack, right? right? The Sugar Shack. Sugar Shack. So Gay was so taken by this piece that he didn't care to simply license it, as a lot of artists may have done. He bought it outright. Is that correct? Yes, he did. He he owned it. He licensed it, but he owned it as well. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So there are only some minor modifications done by Barnes himself to, you know, make it appear on the cover as it ultimately did. Let's talk about a few of those changes. Yeah, they had the banners hanging from the ceiling. He added the banner and he modified the text on some of them. And it was modified just to... Uh, it wasn't a complete track listing, but it had the names of some of the songs that you're going to find on the album on the banners. So it was more of an advertisement, I guess, for the for the uh, for the music inside in in the revised or the tweaked version. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. But much to the label chagrin, Gay refused to include himself in the cover. Is that correct? Yeah, they wanted his picture on there. They thought, you know, that he was that touchstone that you talked about. And yeah. if you could see who did this album, Marvin Gaye, they would sell more of them. So, yeah, they wanted his picture on the album, but Marvin said no. He, yeah. He wanted Sugar Shack. That, that's interesting. And I do like that he defers to Barnes's vision in this case. You yeah. know, like we said, with only a couple minor, minor modifications. Um, but there's a lot that strikes me about this entire piece, which I'm sure we can talk about a bit. But what strikes me about the process <clears throat> of, you know, taking this painting and making it into an album cover for one of the biggest artists at the time is that it remains essentially unchanged. You know, you, you're, you're maybe adding a couple things on banners here, changing it from the original location to talk a little bit about Marvin Gaye and what's in the album. But the cover remains virtually unchanged. Because, to be honest, it feels like not a lot had actually changed on a fundamental level between the time the original piece is portraying and the year I Want You was released. No, certainly not in society. So the march of progress was slow. Yes. And the upheaval continues, certainly at that time. This piece, yeah, I think, reminds us that due to its barn setting, black Americans weren't allowed in dance halls. That's why they're in the sugar shack. Yeah, separate society. Yeah. You know, separate entertainment, separate 
places to eat, separate water fountains. You know, you know it all. You've heard it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So this ultimately, this colorful, expressive, and celebratory piece also really holds a lot of pain. I think um, you know you don't necessarily see that in the perpetual motion um, or resonance of the piece. You know, certainly people dancing and enjoying themselves, but the abandon with which they're dancing and yes. enjoying themselves is, is seems to be releasing something uh, powerful. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Yeah. So I think this piece is not just a definitive document of Marvin Gaye's career. It's a definitive document of the black experience. Yeah. And yeah. Barnes was an incredible talent that is somewhat relegated to the history books, uh, you know, in, in the major museums. I've never encountered his work. No, me either. But I'm not an artist, uh, or, or really much of an art aficionado. No, but, nor am I. Uh, but in the canon of black uh, artists in America, he has to be ranked in, at or near the top. Oh yeah, absolutely. So respect to Ernie Barnes. Absolutely. All right. See you next time. <laughs>